You know the difference between hockey and those other sports? You gotta be tough to be a hockey player. I idolize Dominic Kaczyk. I played goalie because of Dominic Kaczyk. My life in hockey has been started because of Sabres hockey. I didn't need playoffs this year. I wanted it, but I didn't need it. But when you screw up for the fans as much as the team has over the last, like, five years, and just don't hold yourself accountable, I'm sorry. I'll hang up and listen. I'm sorry. Welcome to Two Goalies, One Mike, an in-depth look and behind-the-mask conversation about the greatest game on earth, where everything goes and nothing's off limits. Now I'll tell you something about this guy. This is only three minutes, eh? Whammo! Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 40 of Two Goalies, One Mike. I'm Johnny Cullen, joined alongside, as always, Dwayne Steinel. Dwayne, for episode, you know, big episode number 40, we have a big guest, um, you know, and, and I'm very proud to have on Rick Vive. Rick, thank you for coming on, man. You got a, a new book out. I know that you've been doing the, the media rounds. We really appreciate having you on. For some of our younger guests that don't know, Rick was the first and only Maple Leaf, I believe, to get 50 goals in a season. He did it in back-to-back-to-back years uh, in the 80s uh, in a time where, you know, it was him, Bossy, and Gretzky, the prolific goal scorers in that stretch. So we are honored to have you on, Rick. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, uh, no, two other guys scored 50 after me, Gary Lehman and Dave Anderson. Okay, and, so it only took me get... two minutes to be. It only took me two minutes or thirty seconds <laughs> to the fuck off. I'm sorry. The, 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 the interview's already scrub it, scrub it, scrub it, Rick. You know we got to have you back on another time. <laughs> no, but you know what? His record. Hey, it is what it is. Yeah, his record still stands today at fifty-four goals. Austin Matthews yeah. might have had. He might have had a shot at it, but you know what? The season was short. Too bad, Austin. Feel it, Austin. Well. I felt bad for him, actually. I mean, if it was an injury or something, then, you know what, hey, that's part of the game. You miss whatever, however many games you were injured, which he had been in his previous seasons. But when the pandemic took the opportunity away from him, I I actually did feel bad for him that he didn't get the opportunity to do it or to tie it or break it. I know he would have got 50 because he would have scored three goals in 10 games for sure. Um, But – you know, could he have scored seven or eight? I don't know. But he'll never know either because it was taken away from him. See, and that's a good point. And, and, and like, talking about NHL today, the young guys like Austin, you know, this will be a blip in their career, something that, you know, they have a chance to kind of go back after it. I was reading the other day something about Ovechkin, you know, him chasing the all-time goals record, where with younger guys, yeah, they're missing a year, but, you know, they still have plenty of years left. With Ovechkin, like losing this hockey hurts, right? Yep. Takes a toll on his body. He's not getting any younger. So I, I I feel bad, even worse for for the older guys on that. You know, the back nine of their career, especially the ones like Ovechkin chasing records. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that this hurts his ability to try and get, you know, past Wayne Gretzky. Um, but he's a he's an unbelievable goal scorer, and I I would I would assume he, he's a big big man, big strong guy. You know I I don't see why he couldn't put up you know forty goals a year for the next five six years. I believe he could. 
And if he if he does, he'll get pretty darn close, if not past Wayne Gretzky's record. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it sucks because he's going to, like they're talking now about what, 56 games, I think? 52 to 56 games, uh, yep. Yeah, so I mean, you know, he might get 25 or 30 if, if he plays really well, but it's not a full season. And yeah, you're right. I mean, the older guys are the guys, you know, you look at a lot of the guys like even like the Leaf sign with Joe Thornton and Simmons and some of these older guys, like, I mean, like you say, they're on the back now. They're probably on their last hole. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they're, they 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 only have so much time left. Yeah. And, and well, a good, you know, not, not to uh, kind of a play off your book, catch 22 of it all is, is they have had a ton of time off. They have a lot of these guys have had a ton of time off. They've had time to rest these injuries. And, you know, I don't know what, in a shortened season with all of that, you know, time to get your body, you know, to where it needs to be, rest up any ailments you have. Maybe maybe a guy like Ovechkin comes out of the gates, just guns a-blazing, you know. You know, you, you maybe, Anything maybe, can happen. It, it really can. And the one good thing about Ovi is he's always taken great care of his body. Injuries have not really ever affected his career like they have, say, Sidney Crosby. Um, and and you go know, back and yeah, Sid lost a full season with the concussion yep. stuff. And I remember I was in Canada at the time. So TSN was always on talking about Dwayne. There was question marks if that was it for him. Right. Like, Oh yeah. Well, was, I remember, I remember vividly, time, right. You only have one head. Uh, my mom always used to say, you got two shoulders, two arms, two legs. You got one brain, John, so don't mess it up. But I'm sorry, Mom, I'm not too late for that. Eric, I don't, I don't remember if – I can't remember if you played with him at all, but a perfect example of that was here in Buffalo, Pat LaFontaine with the concussions. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I didn't play – well, I played I, with I, Pat yeah, for – he, he, he was like early 90s, right? Yeah, so you wouldn't have seen him. No, no, he, he, he was traded to Toronto or to Buffalo when I was still there. Okay, you was, okay. And then uh, – I think it was my last year or maybe a year and a half I played with him. And, uh, yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, you look, I mean, yeah, concussions are, you know, like you say, Crosby. I mean, I, there was a lot of people wondering if he'd ever play in the NHL again, play hockey, period, mm-hmm. and maybe even be able to lead a normal life. But, you know, he found a way. Uh, but, yeah, I, I guess – that's the saving grace for the older guys. And, and you got to look at today's game too. I mean, every team, they have a sports science team. They have strength and conditioning coach, skating coaches, skill coaches. They got everything. And as soon as any, I mean, coaches really have no say in whether a guy practices today because a sports science team, if they go to the coach, they just say, so-and-so is getting tired. He needs a day off. And yeah. there's nothing the coach can do about it. And yeah. Yeah, which is fine uh, because, you you know, I don't think anybody really understands that they're big assets and they're they're paying them a lot of money. So when they're when they're on the ice, they want them at their peak performance. They want them at their best. And I think it's great. Unfortunately, we didn't have anything like that in the goddamn 80s. I mean, we, you know, you got your belt, as they called it, you got your bell rung. You'd sit there, maybe miss a shift or two, and then you'd be back out there. And uh, and the other thing too is our trainers, like twenty-one teams. I, I bet you there was probably maybe five or six that had a certified medical trainer. Not a boat mechanic. Rest, <laughs> boat mechanic. Yeah, <laughs> like our boat mechanic. Uh, God, God rest his soul. Guy was a great career. Was a great, great person. But, but he was a boat mechanic, and he probably took some courses, and Harold said, okay, you're going to be the trainer. 
But that's the way Harold was, right? So I want to definitely touch on 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 Harold and how you know his. You know, I hate to say it, his cheapness kind of was the demise of the Leafs and the reason why you guys weren't able to do it. Before we get into that, I have to ask two things before I transition into your career. When when we're talking about Ovechkin, and you know, I'm happy you brought up that you know the trainers and everything and and the maintenance days and how the game has changed so much. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, just especially from the 80s to today, you kind of saw it in the late 90s into the early 2000s. It start to change with the new rules after that mm -hmm. last lockout. But when if you take a guy like Ovechkin, the questions always ask in reverse. They say if you drop Gretzky into today's game, how would he do? My question is this: You take a guy like Ovechkin because he was able, he, he plays physical. You know, he's tough below the goal line. Uh, a lot of his goals either come off the power play or you know off of the rush. Do you think that a guy like Ovechkin would would be just as dominant in in you know the era when you played the early '80s? Absolutely. Uh, and I've always said anybody who in any decade and you can go back as far as you want and up to current. Um, I think anybody who was prolific in scoring goals and, and, you know, 50, 60, 70 goals, whatever, like he's been able to do uh, almost every year since he's come into the league. I think those guys could play in any decade and put up those kind of numbers. You take Morris, Rocket, Richard, put him in today's game, put him in the 80s, he would have done the same thing. I, I just believe that they have the ability, regardless of how the game's played, and they can do it in any era. And I, love I feel very strongly about that. Great answer. All right, so transitioning into this part of the interview, with all of our guests that have played in the National League, we, we, we try to get some background on, on the road to get there because we got, you know, some younger hockey players, some guys in their own right. We had a kid on uh, last week that's playing in the USHL for Fargo that's hoping to hear his name called uh, in the next draft. So, you know, I like to talk about, you know, go through with our guests how they got there. So you were born in Ottawa, uh, which is beautiful, beautiful area of Ontario. I, I spent a year in Kingston and I love my time up there. I got to visit Ottawa a couple of times. But um, you grew up in PEI. Um, so kind of tell us a little bit about that. When did you start playing hockey? Um, and, you know, like leading up to my question is eventually to getting into the, your, your peewee years because you got to play in the, the peewee tournament in Quebec. But tell me a little bit about how you got into hockey and what it was like growing up uh, where you did. Well, I didn't really actually start playing organized hockey until I was probably, I think, seven. Uh, but we always had a rink in the backyard in Ottawa, and, and we were out there all the time. I had two younger brothers, but I had a bunch of buddies that would come over. And I mean, I, I probably started skating at three or four years old and played outdoors. And uh, I think I played in a, a kind of a not a sanctioned league for a year. And then the next thing I know, I'm playing regular uh, uh, hockey. It was kind of like house league though back then. I mean, and until I moved to, to the, uh, the Maritimes, then I got really serious about it and started. But like we didn't have triple A, double A, and A. We just had minor hockey. You tried out at the beginning of the year, and if you made the travel team, like for whatever division you were in, Pee Wee, Adam, Bantam, whatever it might be, then you would play on that team all year. So you would be gone away one weekend or have a team come in for a weekend. And then of course, at the end of the year, you have the, 
the, the playdowns. And if you won your province, you moved on to the Atlantic uh, section. And uh, I think in Charlottetown, gosh, I think I won it in Pee Wee twice in Bantam, once in Midget. So, so you went all the way. Um, to, it was pretty. So you went all the way to like then, the national championship there a couple times? Or did it end yeah, well, in, in Midget, we went to the, um, the Wrigley tournament, uh, which was in Oshawa at the time. I think it was the second year that they started that. And basically, that was the best midget team from each province in the country, cool. uh, whoever won the, their province. And, uh, you know, we didn't do so well there, but uh, but it was fun. I mean, we won the Maritimes like five years in a row that I was playing or four or whatever it was. And uh, that kind of really, when I got there, that's when I started thinking, you know what? And then I played tier two junior in Charlottetown with the, uh, they were called the Charlottetown Colonel Gray Colonels, which was the name of the high school I went to. So they must've had a team before. Yeah. Anyway, there was a tournament in Cape Breton, uh, a high school tournament. And it was a top high school team from each province. And so we put a team together and we had about six guys who were playing junior A at the time. And uh, we all went to this tournament and we won the tournament and I got MVP. And I think that's where I kind of got scouted mostly. And, and the next thing you know, I get drafted by Sherbrooke and then the Marlies in the Ontario League uh, because we didn't have any uh, major junior teams in the Maritime. So you got drafted by both leagues. That's awesome. Really quick. Yeah, was crazy. it the Charlottetown Abbeys? No, that came afterwards. Uh, okay. We were the, the Charlottetown, or we were the Colonel Great Colonels. Oh, I love and it. I love some of those. My, my, my brother actually played for the Charlottetown Abbeys. And that them. was, I think they changed it to the Abbeys a couple of years after I had left and gone off to Sherbrooke. All right. One so, quick question. Uh, the, the peewee tournament. What do you remember about that? I mean, it's something that uh, I wish I got to play in. I think I went to a tryout because there's a team that comes from like the Syracuse, Buffalo, Rochester area. Um, I, I think I got, I, I know I got cut, <laughs> um, but I, like, growing up, that was. Definitely that got was cut. That, yeah, I know I definitely did, <laughs> but definitely I, that was something I, I really wanted to do. And I thought that it's kind of misconstrued, but, and a lot of people are like this today with minor hockey being so competitive. And, and I think that, you know, there's good and bad in that, but I thought, well, if I can make this tournament, that means I'm going to the NHL, which is obviously isn't the case, but it's interesting with that tournament that so many future NHL players, you know, have played in that. And I think it's really cool looking back on it. And, and as a chance as a, what is it? A 10 or 11 or 12 year old to play in, in, uh, in front of all those fans, what an experience it can be. I try to watch some of the live streams when they had the past couple of years online for it. Um, what do you remember from, from that tournament? Well, actually, uh, I got to go twice, actually. It was not it was a big deal. Was, uh, and and that was when I was in, that was when I was in Amherst, Nova Scotia. I lived there for uh, three years or played there for three years. So I was playing PV when I was uh, in Amherst when I was nine years old. And with 11 and 12 year olds, two years. Oh, not. <laughs> I was playing. Yeah. So I played there nine, 10, 11, and then moved to Charlottetown and played there when I was 12. So we didn't go from Charlottetown because we couldn't raise the money, but I went twice when I played in Amherst. And it was just, I mean, going into the La, La Colisee, 
which I played in in junior, played in in a WHA, and having you know 13, 14,000 people in there was just incredible. And uh, it's so cool. Uh, and then just just the whole adventure of getting on the train and and going to Quebec and and billeting with with people there, and then playing in that building, and then. Well, we always planned it because we never knew whether because it was one game and it, one loss and you're out. So we always planned some exhibition games in and around the tournament in case that happened. So we would stay there for five or six days and, and enjoy it and have some fun. And I tell you, it was uh, I don't know how to exactly describe it. It was just like it was just one hell of an experience, I guess. No, for sure. Thank you for sharing that. So you mentioned yeah. uh, playing in the Quebec Major Junior League. Um, you know, leading into it, you know, you, you got drafted in 79, fifth overall. So were you drafted out of the Quebec League or were you drafted out of the WHA? No, out of the WHA. I played okay. there the previous year. And, uh, yeah, it was – I mean, I gave up my last year junior and, you know, there's times where you, you wonder, should I have done that or should I have gone back and maybe score 100 goals and maybe be the first overall pick? Who knows? Well, you uh, had but, 76, 76. 76 goals yeah. in 69 games in, in your last year of junior. I mean, that's no small feat. Obviously, foreshadowed what was to come, you know, once you found your, you know, got your legs underneath you in Toronto. But really quick, I so I find this hockey history fascinating Dwayne, I wish that we grew up in this era because two competing leagues in North America, like obviously we know the NHL won out, but nobody knew that at the time, right? Like the WHA was a viable option. Gretzky played yeah. there early. So what was that like? Did you know that, you know, when you signed there, did you think it was going to be obviously for more than one year? Did you do it to, to get to the NHL? Uh, what were your experiences like with the WHA? And, and, you know, when did you know that you wanted to you know play in the NHL or did you know that all along? Oh, I, I knew that as soon as I got on the plane to go to Sherbrooke. Uh, like I said in the book. Uh, yeah, you mentioned you mentioned in the book, Rick. I, I yeah, like I was waving to my parents, and in my mind I was saying to myself, I'll never be back here to live full-time again. And, you know, yeah, I could have went back and ended up going to school and become whatever, uh, probably an accountant because math was my – was well, it was probably the only subject I was really good in. And uh, – but, you know, I, I, I wanted something more. I, you know, I had one of my friends who uh, dropped out of school at 16 years old and started working in the laundry at the hospital, you know, which, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, he made good money and, and you know, he's now the ma he manages the whole thing now. So he's probably doing very well. But I wanted something bigger for myself, something. And, and that was for me, that was the National Hockey League. And then. That's why I decided to go to the WHA when I was 19 and play against men instead of teenagers and guys that had played pro hockey in the NHL, a lot of them before the WHA came along. But the WHA was wonderful for, for the guys uh, uh, hockey-wise and salary-wise because it gave them another option. And I went there not knowing what the heck was going to happen. I, I went there, just signed a one-year deal, not expecting, you know, the, the merger or anything. I, I had no idea what was going to happen in the future. I went there to be to become a better player, play against men. And if it was the NHL the next year or whatever, uh, that I'd be more prepared for it. 
And, uh, and we were not one of the teams, obviously, that they, – well, they weren't going to let us into the National Hockey League with six uh, 18- or 19-year-olds. Michelle Goulet, Rob Ramage, Craig Hartsburg, Gaston Gingra. Wow. The baby bowls. The baby bowls. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no – makes sense. I, I heard Dwayne say baby bowls – and I didn't really know what he was talking about. That makes perfect sense now. You guys were loaded yeah. with young studs, guys that went on to have great careers. Yeah, and there's no way they were going to let us into the National League with all those guys. And anyway, I mean, it, it was it was a wonderful experience. It was uh, it was kind of it was hard because it was your first time really living on your own and living as a professional. Uh, obviously, the the team aside from the baby bulls, we're all older guys. And what do the older guys do in the WHA or in the NHL back then? Well, they party and they drink and they stay out late. And unfortunately, well, that's what we ended up doing, yeah. but, but I still had a pretty good year despite that. Oh Yeah. Um, one of the things definitely, Rick, obviously you, you, you will transition to this next point when you, when you're drafted into the WHA, you mentioned before is that like, it wasn't about, you know, you obviously knew you were never going to return home again, but the point of it was you were, you were opting out of that last year, Jimmy, because you knew that the WHA was the next level of competition that you want to take. You wanted to play against better competition. It wasn't just about the money. Like you mentioned in your book, you, you want to take that next big step. Granted, it, you are getting paid to play hockey, which is huge. It's a dream for anybody yeah. to get paid to play hockey, but then you come in, you get, you, you get to the, you know, the Birmingham and you, 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 uh, you, you, you get, you start to build uh, this team uh, with the Bulls. And I, I'll actually say about, it was about two months ago, um, we had one of your former teammates' sons on our show, uh, Chris Hartsburg. And I was actually, oh, okay. I was actually yeah, I was actually texting uh, Chris uh, while I was reading the book. And I'm like, hey, man, like I, I'm reading, I'm reading Rick Vive's book right now. And he's talking about your dad a lot. I didn't realize, and Chris, you know, his father, Craig, he had a, a phenomenal career, a phenomenal oh, yeah. career. And I'm like, you know, it's yeah. just, you look at the team, Rob, Rant, you like all the players, um, you know, Riggins, Ramage, um, Hartsey, you know, a lot, a lot of these guys, you know, great careers and they have all those guys on that team it was just wow like that like holy crap and just how good you guys were and how and you even said in your book without those group of guys you you know you don't know if you would have made it through that that first year uh because like you said you were always kind of felt obligated to go out with the older guys when they went out because there was a bar right across the street from the rink that they all went to yeah. So you felt like you to be yeah. a part of the team, you had to go out. So you almost it was it wasn't like a peer pressure thing. Maybe it was, but you felt obligated, like you had to be there for at least a few. And you said it was, you know, very, very settling that you had those guys with you, the baby bulls with you, you know, that first year in the WHA. Yeah, that really helped because we like we all lived in the same kind of apartment complex. It was it wasn't like an apartment building, it was just uh rows of apartments like there was only two floors and we uh you know we would go with the older guys and thankfully you know because of rob and and uh Hartsey, who were the wright brothers and pat Riggin and right, I the wrong brothers. brothers yeah and awesome. so i mean we would go and then they would say okay let's go let's go let's get out of here there's some times where i stayed but the majority of the times i would you know follow their lead and and head back to the apartment. So, um, but there were some times where, you know, I stayed with the older guys and 
and mainly because I wanted to, and we didn't have a game the next day or anything or the next couple of days. So I said, what the heck? I mean, you know, it's not, not going to kill me to stay out and have a little bit of fun. And, I, uh, you know, I kind of, I, I'm sorry. I actually want to pull a quote right from the book um, on your goalie, uh, Patty Riggins. Oh. <laughs> you'll, you'll appreciate this. <laughs> I actually, I highlighted a lot in your book, some certain talking points, but this was one of the first things I highlighted. Um, goalies are different on and off the ice. They have their quirks. He was really messy for starters. One time around the Christmas holidays, his girlfriend was coming to visit. I swear he hadn't washed his sheets from the day he moved in and probably even before that. I did him a favor and he wasn't happy about it. This is uh, pertaining to when you cleaned his stuff when he was away. But once the girlfriend arrived and saw the clean room, well, I think he was happy after that. The two of us were nicknamed the wrong brothers. Ramage and Hartsburg, who lived together, were the right brothers. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's incredible. Yeah, that was uh, that was funny. Uh, Patty, Patty was a great guy and everything, but but he was a goalie and he was he was a slob. I mean. But I put rubber gloves on when I did his sheets, by the way. Just, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> hey, there's always that but one I mean, guy on your team that just doesn't, you know, doesn't his room's a mess, his stall's a mess at the rink, doesn't care. When he comes in, he throws his stuff at you know what I mean? You always have that one guy. It just so happened that this team, it was also the goalie. So he's got a couple things working against him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, yeah, I hear the story about Butch Goring, like he when he went on the road, all he all he, he took one suit and he put his toothbrush and toothpaste in his pocket of his suit coat, and that was it. That's incredible. Didn't bring a change of clothes or anything. <laughs> there was his toothbrush to brush his teeth in the oh, morning. Towel. I'm sure towels are provided at the rink if you're showering, but <laughs> I could not. I need at least a, a carry-on bag, something, man. Like I can't. Oh, no, hey, well, they, they leave like shampoo. When I heard in the visitors' room, you just take it with him. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was shocked when I heard that, but, but we, you know, there was guys that were kind of like that a little bit uh, that I played with and uh, over the years and, and stuff. Patty was probably the worst. And like I said, it, with his girlfriend coming in, I just, he left to go run a bunch of errands that day. And I said, okay, this is my chance. And I got the rubber gloves out and I took them and took them to the laundry room and put them in, put them through the wash, dried them, put him back on the bed and he did thank me after his girlfriend left, by the way. So oh, I'm sure he did. You know, so I think I did, I did him a big favor. Um, really quick before we move on to the NHL, I mean, I have a feeling we could talk to you for hours. This is incredible. And this is why <laughs> folks, his book is a must read. Um, I know Dwayne was telling me about it. He's all into it. And I can't wait till, you know, I see my brother's face when he opens it up on Christmas morning. So get out there and buy that book. But listen, I, on, on your world junior team, a bunch of those baby bulls were on that 77, 78, you know, Wayne Gretzky, Wayne Babich, Tony McKegney, Mike Gardner, Bobby Smith, Craig Hartsburg, Steve Tamalini, Rob Ramage, Brad Marsh, Rick Vave, Rick Patterson, um, Brad McCrimmon, but your goalie, Al Jensen, I'm friends with Al. Al is phenomenal. Um, I don't know if he's still the NHL uh, the, uh, scouting director of goalies, but he was while I played. I got hooked up with him through Ben Vanderklok, who's now the National Predators goalie coach. So I worked a couple camps with him when I ran my own camp. Um, he, uh, Rick, so Al actually came out to my own camp. I ran in Windsor, talked to the kids. It was so cool for those kids. They all loved it. Al is an awesome guy and, uh, you know, had a great career himself. 
but just a stand-up guy uh, and great at what he does. And, I, I, you know, big shout-out to Al Jensen. He's somebody, Dwayne, that we have to have on the show. But uh, what do you remember about Al? Uh, well, he, he was pretty good. I mean, uh, you know, we well, our whole team was pretty darn good. Yeah, it's unreal. You know, I, I, I don't – yeah, I mean, that that was a, a pretty goddamn good hockey team. And, I mean, I've heard – you know, when I, when I tell people we won the bronze, they look at me and go, what do you mean? You, that's all you won the bronze, but I said, okay, you got to remember that all those stars who came from Russia, uh, Larry on off, Kasatonov, Fedosov, all those guys that came to the NHL years later, they were all on that team. Yeah. They moved the puck around like 59, 60 birth years for Russia was super strong. Yeah, exactly. And then the Swedes were the same, you know, they had, uh, I forget the gentleman's name played for the Canadians. Uh, uh, his brother played in uh, Vancouver. Are you? We, well, uh, anyway, the Swedes had a lot of really good players that came over and played in the NHL and, and other leagues over here as well. So, you know, I mean, for us to win the bronze, it, for me anyway, it, it wasn't that bad. I mean, when you look at what those other teams and how good they were, um, yeah, obviously we would have would have been better off winning the silver or the, or the gold. But I mean, you know, we, we had a hell of a team, but they they had better teams, and you know that that was just a fact. So that gold medal game, the Soviets ended up beating Sweden five two. But man, that yeah, like that birth year, especially for the uh, for the Russians. Um, they were loaded. Um, and, and it's funny cause you, you know, with the iron curtain still up, uh, a lot of those guys, it took a little bit for them to get to the national league. Uh, but mm-hmm. once they did, um, you know, you played against them, but, you know, getting back to your career, um, you know, so you, well, you get drafted, uh, first round, every kid's dream fifth overall, were you at the draft or back then was it, you just got a phone call? Well, that year, uh, normally it was held in Montreal at the uh, Queen Elizabeth Hotel, uh, but that particular year was the year of the merger and the four teams of WHA coming into the NHL. So the draft actually was in August. It, it was late. It was a late draft and it was a phone draft. So, you know, you just sit by the phone waiting for somebody to call and tell you who you got drafted by. Um, it wasn't like today where you had this kind of a situation where we could look at each other or, or they could have something set up in the, in the players, uh, homes or wherever they are to see the reaction or anything. And, uh, you know, we, technology wasn't available like this back then. So it was just a phone call and, uh, Different world. that was it. So that you, was it. So you break into the, you, you break into the, to the league that year. Um, you know, you obviously have some success in Vancouver, your rookie year, you know, you get 13 goals, you know, 20, 20 some points in 40 games, you get traded to the Leafs. Um, and you know, for you being born in Ontario, were you a Leafs fan growing up? Was this something that, I mean, are you a Sens fan? Well, the Sens weren't around when you were growing up. Right. So, um, who did you identify? I'm not that old. (laughs) (laughs) What was your, who was your favorite team growing up? Well, no, the least were, and uh, well, that must know, have been. I, cool I mean, then, right? Like in the Maritimes, uh, you know. I mean, we got Montreal and Toronto all the time, and my my father's from Gatineau, so he was a diehard Canadians fan, being a French Canadian, and 
you know, you kind of want, like, you know, if your father cheers for the Canadians, well, no, I can't cheer for them because my father does. Yeah, so I yeah. The you know, but I had to be careful because I did, I couldn't let them know that I, I was cheering for the Leafs. So, so you were at least fan no in, in disguise. Well, it's definitely, <laughs> yeah, I, I had to, I, I had to show no them. emotion when the Leafs scored against the Habs and, uh, you know, kind of pretend that, yeah, yeah, go Habs, you know. And then, meanwhile, I'm like, no. Nah, that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> so no, I, I was a Leaf fan growing up. Yes. So yeah. you get you get traded trade, getting trade. Yeah, getting traded there was. Uh, we met them on the road actually. So the first time, putting that sweater on and skating out in Maple Leaf Gardens was just a, an unbelievable experience for me. And and being able to do that, and then a couple of years later, uh, you know, being uh, named a captain and. And wearing that, and then score, being the first player to score 50 goals, which I didn't know until I got about to about 45, and the press yeah. told me, you know, you could be the first player, and I'm like, you know, wait a minute, like of all the great players played in Toronto, no one yeah. has ever and scored able, 50 no, goals. None and, of them scored 50. You know, like that, it was wild. Yeah. I didn't know that when I read yeah. it, Rick. That was wild to me. I'm like, yeah. how, like, how the hell has nobody scored 50 in that many years from you know when when the when Toronto the organization was founded till now, like. Like until then, was it was yeah. nobody scored fifty, especially back then? That I, I was, was shocked. Wild to me. Yeah, I, I was shocked myself, and then uh, you know they ended up getting fifty four that year, and uh, you know what I mean. I, I loved playing in Toronto, and I was so disappointed and and pissed off when I got traded uh, to Chicago yep. in in uh, eighty seven, and not not even I, well, I was pissed off primarily because I got traded. But I also got traded three days before training camp. So I had to go. Yeah. I was at a golf tournament up in, up yeah. in uh, northern uh, Ontario. And I had to drive home, pack up a car, and then the next day head to Chicago because I was starting training camp in two days. And uh, so that, yeah, everything about that whole situation was really, really bad. I hated it. I, want, I wanted to stay in Toronto and finish my career there. But. You know what? It, uh, shit happens, as they say, and you move on. Yeah. So I, I, we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up um, the the situation in Toronto, and, and not just with you, but throughout that era. Uh, what's his name? Harold Ballard. Yep, Harold Ballard, the owner. Yeah. The owner, and and stories have come out about just how cheap he was, and and I don't think people get it. Like I I, I realized it even at the OHL level. You know, and nothing against these teams, but when I played at Sarnia, they were pinching pennies. Uh, we ate at, at cheap restaurants, stayed at cheap hotels. You know, they, they, they saved money wherever they could. And I know that's different because that's a small market team. But when I got to Windsor and, and they didn't, you know, they didn't spare a penny. We had an awesome, you know, rink and brand new locker room, everything like that. We stayed at good places on the road. They, 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 they order us good food. And I remember Bugner used the analogy. Well, you know, do they, do they put, you know, in NASCAR, do they put unleaded fuel in their cars? And we're like, no, they put premium. And he's like, that's why, you know, we go out and get you good food. Cause you know, your body's the car. And I, that, that always stuck with me and they did things the right way, but it's amazing how that, you know, it doesn't always transition. You gotta, you gotta have a good team. You gotta have good players. But when, when you spare yeah. no expense, the guys take notice of that and you're willing to go through a wall for your owner, for your team, for your coaches, for your brothers. Um, so it's just disappointing that in the biggest hockey market in the world, 
you know, at a time, you know, at its peak when it could have been great and you had some of the pieces that were could have had some of the pieces you didn't because there's this guy, Harold Ballard, that was just got in the way. Um, I thought yeah, it was it was very unfortunate. And well, of course, when you're in Windsor, too, the general manager and the coach are the owners. So that, that helps a little bit, too, because they know what they need to do in order to get the best out of the players. But, yeah, Harold was like the Grinch. I mean, he was like uh, he was very cheap. He wouldn't pay for a good general manager who, in my estimation, made a lot of mistakes. He brought in players at 18 years old that were not physically or mentally ready to play in the National Hockey League. And those guys had short careers and they didn't help us at all. And, uh, you know, he did a lot of other things. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure that most of the players on our team were paid less than what guys on other teams were making. And, uh, but you know, back then the owners controlled the league. Yeah. That, that, that's what everybody, I don't think anybody understands. They controlled everything. We had no, they had Al Eagleson who was the head of the player association in their yep. back pocket. Yeah. You know, and so shady, man. Uh, we like free agency was 32 years old That's and no salary. Just yeah, no salary disclosure. They had a thing called recallable waivers. So basically, if they wanted to, they could get anybody to the minors, because even if they put me on recallable waivers, they know no one's going to claim me because they're going to recall me and try and trade me there. So any good player, they could get to the minors if they really, really wanted to. And, you know, it was one of those things. In fact, I ran into that in Buffalo in my uh, my last year there with John Muckler. John and, Muckler. Uh, that's all detailed in the book as well. Yep. Yep. And I asked him to do whatever he could to move me. And then I said, well, okay, well, then put me on waivers and he said i already did i said well yeah of course you put me on recallable waivers not the same thing muckler figure it out buddy put me on the real waivers well he claims it's the same which i said no it's not the same john and you you know that and i i'm pretty sure had he put me on regular waivers boston lost neely that year i'm pretty sure they would have picked me up as a right winger and maybe or maybe another team and, uh, you know, perhaps I would have been able to play another three or four years in the league. Uh, so that was kind of like the end of it. A right better there. situation, then, too. So I wanted to well, I yeah, absolutely yeah. agree. I think that what well, you talk about Boston losing Cam Neely, I think you still had some good years left in the tank. It's disappointing the way that the league was run with the owners, the good old boys club, you know, them looking out for each yeah. other, the the players association really being, a you know, I don't want to say corrupt organization, but not really what it is today. But one last point on your years in, in Toronto that really struck me for anybody that wants it to have a clear picture painted about how cheap this owner was, you guys, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys would leave for flights at like later in the night. So he yep, didn't yep, have to pay your, the book. <laughs> your per diem was cut in half or he didn't have to pay the per diem at all. How did that story go? Yeah, we left, uh, we chartered a lot, right? So, I mean, it, when they were closer, uh, games so it was pittsburgh or whatever for instance we would leave the night before but we wouldn't leave until 7 35 so 7 30 was a cutoff and if you left after 7 30 then you didn't he didn't have to pay you a full day's meal money he only had to pay you like a third or something and we did that for a while and finally i went to harold and i said listen i said harold 
can we leave like at three or four in the afternoon in those situations? Because like there's there's lots of times where we are delayed, you know, plane troubles, whatever the case might be, where we wouldn't arrive until like 10 o'clock at night in the city the night before a game. And, you know, for the players, that was not the best situation. So I said, look, we won't take the half day meal money or whatever it was. Would you do that for us? So eventually he did. He, he said, OK, I'll, yeah, we'll leave at four o'clock or whatever it is. And, and it, it was a lot better for us. And then eventually he started paying us that half day meals money, uh, meal money, uh, like about a year and a half, two years later. And, uh, but yeah, you know, it was just one of those things where five minutes, so he wouldn't have to pay every guy. And don't forget our meal money back then was probably about, I don't know, 45, $50 a day, something like that. If that, um, it wasn't very much. So he wasn't, he wasn't saving a lot of money, I guess, over the course of us, of, of an entire season, maybe, but, but not for one, for one flight. No. Um, and, and you know, and you know what? Another another story I heard, I not heard, I read it in your book, not heard. Um, was uh, <laughs> there was another thing that uh, Harold canceled all charter flights because uh, one of the flight attendants wouldn't <laughs> let him have a candy bar because he was diabetic. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was on the charter flight, and uh, we like we had a little like literally that big like a little thing about that deep of lasagna is what we had after a game. Uh, <laughs> and then after the flight attendant would come by with like a big wicker basket full of chocolate bars and King Clancy was sitting a couple of rows in front of Harold and he, he told her, he said that the older gentleman behind me can't have any because he, he was a diabetic and, and he was. Anyway, Harold digs his big paw in, grabs about three or four bars and she slaps him on the hand and says, you can't have any, sir. You have diabetes. That's awesome. Those charters for the rest of the season. And and I fly we commercial. Flew, <laughs> we flew commercial, but guess what? We were the fourth best team in the league in the second half because we had all those guys from Czechoslovakia, Freecher, Inacek, a couple of rushing guys. We had we had a lot of new guys on the team that year. So that, get, that gave us a, a chance to go out together and get to know one another. And I think that really – uh, built the trust between all of us and we became a better hockey team because of that. And, uh, you know, cause we were, we were the fourth best team in the second half of the season in the league. And, uh, unfortunately the first half was horrible. <laughs> so, so we did, we didn't have a great year, but, um, getting to know those guys and having them get to know you. And then there was a trust factor that, that was put in between all of us when we were playing. The, the yeah. best teams, you know, you, you find your identity, you come together on the road and it's, it's, it's through those moments that there's no substitute for that. I'm a firm believer in that the best teams I played on, yeah. you know, a lot of times you look back and we were, you look back and we had that one early road trip up to the Sioux or Sudbury, the long trip early on. And that's where we came together. And, and there's no replacement for that. Yeah. And, um, like you said, sometimes you dig a hole too deep in the first half of the season. Uh, but, you know, you always wonder in the back of your head, you know, had we come together a little bit earlier, what would have, what would have been? So that's awesome. Thank you for the, thank you for delving into that. Go ahead, Dwayne. Yeah. Well, as a coach, I took a lot of that with me too. And uh, uh, when I started coaching in uh, the East Coast League, that, that was one of the things that I wanted to 
kind of force on my team was this is this is about all of us and you know I mean one of the well back then one of our the coaching things was uh, was uh, the rule 21 rule and that was seven players are going to hate you seven are going to love you and your job was to keep the other seven away from the seven that hated you and uh, then then you might have some success but I mean that was a joke but that's I mean, unreal that's I kind never of heard that but everybody talked about it and that was kind of your job as a coach. But my, I just felt that, look, I, I wanted to make every single person on that team, uh, the guy that was uh, the extra forward and didn't play much, but maybe kill penalties or, or whatever the case might be. The, the goal was to make every player on that team feel like he was just as important as every other, other guy sitting in that dressing room. And, and if you can pull that off uh, and, you know, what I did was I used to call on the way to practice. I'd pick three names. I'd, I'd call them in after practice, sit down with them for a half an hour, just talk. Not necessarily about hockey, about everything. Everything okay? Like, we supplied the apartments. Is your apartment okay? The guy had a wife or a girlfriend. Is she okay? Anything you need? Is there anything I can do for you? I mean, but I did it because I generally, I really cared about these kids, Uh you know, I knew they weren't making a lot of money. And, uh, you know, that, for me, that was the most important thing that I did as a coach uh, in, the, in the ECHL and in the American League later on. Yeah, and, and another thing, too, that I wanted to bring up is when, when you were drafted um, by Vancouver after, you know, the, you know, leaving the WHA, the merger happens. Um, obviously, there was some difficulties with your salary. I know you signed, I think it was an extension with uh, with Birmingham beforehand, hoping that your salary would transition over. Mm-hmm. There was a fight over that. Um, and then you were drafted fifth overall by Vancouver, a team like you noted in your book, you weren't expecting to be drafted by because they didn't ever spoke to you. And I believe it was Harry Neal you went to go play for, correct? Yeah, yep. Harry Neal, yep. and you guys, you know, you guys butted heads a lot, and you didn't get a whole lot of playing time, not really understanding why. And then, you know, um, you know, with all the difficulties going on in Vancouver, and I again, you look, you look at what you did uh, in junior in junior hockey, and just don't understand why he wouldn't want to play you. I mean, you obviously you gave your thoughts in your book, and then you get this <laughs> trade that was early on in your rookie season over to uh, Toronto, a team you. <clears throat> up you know rooting for and then almost not immediately you're you know the all the drama with daryl sittler is going on you know as you again you noted in your book that as soon as uh punch him came back he started trading away all daryl's friends because he believed it was a culture problem even though sittler again is a leafs legend and in my opinion deserved better respect than what he was get, being given um you know and then here you are, 22 years old. Again, your, your, your book is full of catch-22s, as you state a number of times. You're given the C, the captaincy, at 22 years old and expected just to go with it. And, and honestly, the biggest hockey hotbed in North America, where honestly, and it's still to this day, where the media is all over you, the spotlight's on you. And here's Rick Vive, 22 years old. You know, um, just you know, not re- not just traded in Toronto, but you know, he's still a fresh face in Toronto, and you're, he's you're expected to take the reins over from a guy like Daryl Sittler, and just all the drama that was going on with Harold and just everything, every all like it's like Cully's mentioned, and you mentioned your book, it was all the pinching of pennies and just what was going on with Punch. I know, I know, he had heart issues, and he and he left the organization for a little while, but you know, 
just just what was that like going through and what were the pressures of 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 being a young captain i i, I know you mentioned a couple times that you know you you, you tried to, you took it with stride but you know, all the pressures that came with that and just another catch 22 for you. Like you said, you, 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 you knew you weren't ready to be captain, but you couldn't say no, because then how does that make you look? Well, exactly. And that, excuse me, like that was the biggest disappointment about the whole situation was, you know, the management and the ownership didn't sit me down and have a conversation with me and kind of say, you know, do you think you're ready to be the captain and, you know, whatever. This Harold just came up to me one day and said, you're a captain. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there at 22 years old, knowing that I might need another year or two in the league before I'm ready to take over that responsibility. <clears throat> and then at the same moment, looking at him and going, but if I don't knowing Harold, he'll trade me and I don't want to leave here. And so I took it on. I fortunately had Boria Salmi beside me in the dressing room who helped me a lot and would stand up and, and uh, you know, back me in, in certain situations. But I think it made me a better player too because knowing that you're the captain and of the team, you know that you got to be the leader. And I, I was always a guy that led by example. I didn't get up in the room and yell and scream and everything. I'd get up and maybe state something. And if guys weren't listening, Boria would be right there to back me up. And so he, he was a great help to me. And then, you know, of course, within a year and a half, we became a, a much younger team. And I was already and I was 24 years old and I was a veteran. And all these young kids are, are you know, then everything, everything became a lot easier to be the captain at that point. Yeah. And a so, lot of those, those. Yeah, it was like, Harold, uh, that's the way it was. I mean. You know, and then having seen what Daryl went through, um, you know, there, that that would that was a, putting a little bit of hesitation in my mind yeah. as well. Um, although I knew Punch was gone, uh, Harold was still there. <laughs> Harold was always there, and like I said, there yeah. was there was a lot of pressures with have being put in that position. And those three years you had, you know, be, you know, three years in a row of 50 plus goals and, and, and a record that still stands today. And Miss, you can correct me if I'm not, were you, you're, you were the youngest at that point, maybe still today, the youngest captain, ever, the youngest player to ever be named captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I think I look back at it. I didn't see anybody. Yeah. yeah still to this day, nobody. And still am. Yep, still to this yeah. day, another you know another feather in your cap, you know, along with fifty four goals, you were the uh, youngest player to ever be named captain of the prestigious you know Toronto Maple Leafs, the standard, the blue white standard in the NHL, and you know just the pressures that come with that, and then you know obviously the goal totals tailed off a little bit, but there were reasons behind that afterwards, and like you said, you were pissed when you left Toronto, you were angry um, when you were traded to Chicago because you felt finally the you guys were you know taking the right steps to get to where you wanted to be. And then you, you take a ton of pride in that. Cause you've been there through all of it. You've been there. Like you've been through the heartbreaks yeah. and the ups and the downs and just that, you know, and you know, you, you've been through with, with, with obviously the snubs for the Canada cup and stuff like that. And you've, and you've been through all those, you know, those, those heartbreaks and some ups, some downs, and all of a sudden things are starting to head in the right direction. And here you are getting traded to, uh, to, to Chicago. Yeah, it was it was kind of frustrating because I wish I could have stayed around because and uh, you know when when new when Harold uh, 
passed away and the team moved on to a different ownership and different general manager and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to be part of that. I knew it was going to get better at some point because I knew Harold wasn't going to be around forever. And, uh, uh, then when they went on those tears, those two years in a row where they went to the conference finals, I, I watched it all. And I, I was extremely happy for the players that finally they, you know, seeing a, a Toronto team get to the conference finals and almost the Stanley Cup finals. But at the same time, wondering like, wow, what if I hadn't got traded in 87? Would yeah. I be there now and be, you know, going through this with these guys? And I never got that opportunity. Yeah, and again, what if what if Harold was wasn't so, you know, so cheap and stuff like that, and brought in the pieces and didn't trade away certain pieces, you know, where you could have been, maybe you know, maybe we aren't talking about a team that hasn't won a cup since '67. Maybe we are talking about a team that did win a cup in the '80s, maybe early '90s. Maybe it becomes, you know, you know, something close to a dynasty. You never know because you guys had the talent coming in, you know, you know, going into those years, and then they trade away a bona fide goal scorer like you. It just didn't make a ton of sense at all. It didn't make any sense at all. No, yet. well, you know, I think uh, I, I think I don't know. John Brophy wanted Al Secord obviously because he loved tough guys. Al was at the end of his career as far as fighting was concerned, and I knew that. Um, you know, he didn't really enjoy getting into fights anymore. I mean, he did it for a long time, and he was very good at it. Don't get me wrong. Um, and then, of course, they got Ed Olchuk, who had a heck of a uh, career in Toronto and, 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 and in the NHL, period. So, But, you know, you got myself, Steve Thomas, who put up a lot of goals after he left Toronto as well, uh, going to Chicago and Bob McGill along with us. So, um, yeah, you know what, it was – and then, of course, I only last a year and a half there because – after my first year and 43 goals, Mike Keenan comes in and all of a sudden I'm not good enough to play. And I sit on the bench pretty much. But you know what? I mean, you, you wrap it all up in a big box and you put a bow on it and you say, yeah, everything wasn't perfect. Everything didn't go unbelievable. But hey, guess what? I played in the best hockey league in the world for 13 years. And I'm pretty proud and honored and and humbled that I was able to, to do that. You should be, man. That's an incredible accomplishment. And uh, Steve, you mentioned Steve Thomas, his son scored quite a few goals on me in our, our limited time together. So <laughs> Christian, Christian had a nasty set of hands. I do have one picture though, of the first game of the year, we we're playing the Oshawa generals at, at the GM center and Dwayne, I'm in a full out poke check, clearly missed the puck because Thomas is on his backhand, right? but he somehow hit the post or something. It's just a great picture of me missing the poke check. Thomas has a wide open net. He hit the post, but that's probably about the only shot he took on me that didn't go in because that kid was a good player, Christian Thomas. Um, It's always fun seeing the the fathers or the, yeah, the fathers that have NHL careers, their kids play in the league um, and play against them. So that was cool. Yeah, There's there's a lot of them, uh, you know, today there's, there's quite a few of the guys that uh, their sons now are playing in the national hockey. My son, Got drafted by Anaheim 92nd overall in 07, but never got a chance to play a game in the NHL. But he's been uh, close to 200 games in the American League and uh, about 300 almost in uh, ECHL. He's a player assistant in Cincinnati. And uh, he's a big kid, 6'6". 
I think he's 245, 250. So I Good was going to ask Good. you, when he was at Miami, um, when uh, yep. so after the OHL, I went to the Ontario Reign, but I was the third goalie behind, um, what's it called? Um, who's the, the big guy in, in uh, Arizona, Dwayne? Darcy um, What's that? Yeah, Darcy Kemper, Kemper and Dan Ruby. So I wasn't playing much. I just come down from junior, but they they gave me a PTO to come back the next year. But that was the uh, the lockout year. So my agent and, and you know the displacement. Everybody, you know, a lot of guys went from the NHL to the AHL, AHL to coast. So I think they had five or six goalies at at camp. Mm-hmm. So my agent um, told me, you know, me and a couple of the other guys in that same situation coming out of major junior. I went to the University of <clears throat> Western in London, Ontario. And we played mm-hmm. our, you know, preseason games against Miami of Ohio. And I think Rico was still the coach. Uh, this would have been 2013. So probably after your son, right? Yeah, he left in, in 2011. But I just remember we went down there for the game. And a lot of people don't know that, um, you know, big time NCA, <clears throat> excuse me, big time NCA Division One programs uh, in, in lieu of a preseason, they'll schedule games against good CIS schools. Um, mm-hmm. so we played, yeah. we played Western Michigan with Andy Murray and then Miami of Ohio. But I just remember Rick, that rink, um, was awesome. Oh. And, and they call it the brotherhood, yeah. right. In Miami. And it's just yeah. a really cool culture that they've created. there. a fantastic place to play. Uh, you know, and hockey is one of the, the bigger sports there. I know they have a football team, but you know, the, the hockey program has had some success. I know that they've lost a couple heartbreakers in the finals, but, mm-hmm. um, I just, I yeah, thought that I was, was cool. there for one of them. Yeah. I was there for one of them in Washington when they, uh, we had a three, one lead with about six. Well, we went up three, one with about six minutes left in the game against Boston university. Yeah. yeah BU. They came and, back. Uh, they scored with, but like Rico went down to two lines for the last six minutes and, and four and three defensemen and, and a fourth, a couple of times. And then, they, they were exhausted. So they, Boston scored with 58 seconds left. He never used a timeout and still didn't put the, the other guys on the ice. And then they scored again. And Nothing then they beat us in overtime. Rico, Rick, but I remember that. And when they, they pan by the bench and, and you see Rico, this is after they scored maybe the second goal, the tying goal. And he looks like he is panicking. And I don't know the guy personally, but it really does. You can see vividly. He's kind of pacing back and forth. And in that moment as a coach, you're trying to calm the guys down, letting them know, hey, listen, it's not over. We got hockey left to play. Just play your game. He doesn't say a word to anybody. And and the guys don't even know who's going out. Eventually, one of the cat, yeah, Dwayne. But eventually, one of the captains stands up and and kind of hops the boards. But in that moment, you got to either take a timeout, collect your group. Emotions are high. Just settle them down. But speaking of coaches, I wanted to bring this up. In your time in the ECHL in South Carolina, you guys, you know, you had an impressive run. Uh, you had a couple awesome home streaks. Uh, the attendance was super high. I think close to 10,000 people. Um, and you, and uh, you coached a couple of players. So one of them being Steve Shields. He was a guest on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, really one of our first guests. Dwayne got him on. He was awesome. And the wow. other guy that you coached was Jared Bednar current coach of the Colorado Avalanche. And I think that one's cool because you coach Bednar for, I know you only had him for that year in the playoffs, but he comes back to start his coaching career in South Carolina. Sure enough, he climbs the ladder and is now, mm-hmm. you know, having success at the national league level. So what do you remember about those two guys? 
Well, Steve wasn't there very long. He uh, he was with Rochester at the time, and he came down just I, – I forget what it was. Maybe it was their all-star break or something. I can't remember. Or they sent a goalie down from Buffalo, and they needed him playing. So he came down for, I think, for a week or two uh, and played with us. And then, uh, But Jared, I, I traded – I got in a trade from with Huntington, West Virginia, and uh, him and Dan Fornell – and, I, and those were two big parts of our team winning the championship that year. And uh, I made a couple other deals as well, but but they were a big part of it. And uh, well, actually, I had them for that year and the year and the following year as well. And uh, it's really nice to see Jared go on and and do the same thing, start in Charleston as an assistant, become the head coach, go on to the American League. And then he got fired and became back to the American League as an assistant. And persevered, and now is coaching. Uh, well, probably one of the best teams in the National Hockey League in Colorado. Definitely the most exciting team to watch. I, uh, to watch. They they play late, obviously, on the East Coast. Yeah. But Nathan McKinnon is an absolute specimen. In my opinion, he was the best player playing hockey at the end of last season. I have him ahead of Connor. I know Connor McDavid's a yeah. talent. I know that he's you know one heart. I think the way Nathan McKinnon was playing. He was the MVP in my books because as Nathan McKinnon went, so did the Colorado Avalanche. All right. And I know the same can be said about McDavid and Edmonton, but hey, I think a big part of it is, can you help your team win? All the individual accolades are great, right? But let's not forget, we play to win the game. And you know what? It's unfortunate to see Colorado lose. One last follow-up question. The year after you guys won the Kelly Cup, do you remember um, – the losing to the PD pride and like they, in a comeback where they scored yeah. the last minute to tie the game. And it was, you know, actually not a goal. Do you remember that? Can you tell us quickly about it? The no goal that they called a goal. Cause us in Buffalo are still reeling from a no goal call. Similarly. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, that cost us a series and uh, that kind of sucked, but you know, uh, I mean, it is what it is. And, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry to bring it. Argue all you can. You know what? You can argue all the want, but there was no uh, challenges. There was no reviews of goals or anything back then. So I mean, it is what it is. I mean, nowadays, uh, it, you know, offsides reviewed and everything. But uh, anyway, gentlemen, I, I got to run here. Unfortunately, I got to. Thank you again, Rick. We really I gotta do. your time, man. Yeah, no, I I appreciate you having me on, and uh, but I, I the fan is calling here to, to schedule for three forty, and I didn't think we'd, we'd go this long, but um, I apologize for that. Rick. But anyway, uh, we have no problem, you. no problem, guys. Thanks oh, again, Rick. There was definitely a lot more we wanted okay. to talk about there, Rick, but we appreciate you having you on. Well, my pleasure, guys. And welcome back, everybody, uh, to the ending of the episode of the Rick Vibe interview. Um, unfortunately, I lost both uh, my co-host and my guest, uh, both Cully and Rick. Uh, Rick had a uh, interview to go do uh, with another radio station, and um, unexpectedly, you know, that's the thing with us. You guys know as well as I do. We tend to talk quite a bit um, once, especially when we have a guest a guest on that we enjoy talking to, especially Rick. Guy is an absolute legend. Uh, he was a beauty of an interview. You know, Ian Cully, obviously, as we mentioned before the show, he had to go uh, run a clinic uh, 
with uh, one of the uh, teams he works for. So uh, with that all being said, I'm going to finish up uh, the episode of myself. going to go here solo, you know, and just tell you guys, you know, I can't stress it enough. Uh, Catch 22, Rick Vives' book, um, My Battles in Hockey and Life, The Untold Story of a Toronto Maple Leafs Legend. He wrote it with a uh, longtime uh, friend, Scott Morrison, another uh another member of the Toronto media community. Just, I just can't stress enough how good this book was, you know, him just really being open about his difficulties with anxiety, uh, you know, finding sobriety twice, um, just dealing with the struggles that, you know, you know, back then it was very difficult to talk about. It wasn't really seen as it was, it was, not very masculine. It, it, it was looked, it was frowned upon by men to talk about your feelings or frowned, not frowned upon by men, but frowned upon, frowned upon by society. You know, you couldn't talk about your feelings, couldn't talk about your mental health. There was a big stigma. There still is a stigma, but it's very much more supported today that people, especially men, not just especially men, but just everybody, you know, if you're going through things, you know, mentally, depression, anxiety, whatever it may be to be open about it and talk about it and seek help. Um, I know we all know that uh, there's the bell let's talk day where, you know, bell let's talk. They they donate so much money for everybody who's the hashtag bell. Let's talk. Um, I know that's actually coming up soon, I think. Um, And and you know what? Another thing too, is we also had on Clint Malarchuk months back and he was insanely open about his mental health and his struggles again with anxiety, OCD, PTSD, just, you know, not ever being properly diagnosed and, you know, how he self-medicated. Honestly, my favorite interview um, was definitely Clint, but honestly, Rick wasn't far behind. I hope we can have him on again sometime so we can actually finish off where we finish off where we left off. So I apologize about that. Um, You know, but one of the things too, though, is outside of just those personal struggles, you get a lot of great hockey stories in this, a lot of great hockey stories. Uh, one of my favorites, um, you know, that I mentioned in the show was the story with, uh, you know, with, with Pat Riggins, his goalie uh, with the Birmingham Bulls, uh, you know, Riggsy, just the, the, uh, the antics of goalies and how, how uh, unsavory he was to live with, just uh, how, how, uh, you know, uncleanly he was and you know uh uh rick having to clean his clean his bed for him with rubber gloves uh when uh when uh riggsy's goal uh, girlfriend was coming to visit you know doing him a favor <laughs> i think i guess riggsy uh, really appreciated other stories too was an encounter with the golden jet bobby hull and the wha um involving bobby hull and his uh infamous toupee really funny story uh some some stuff in here about having the opportunity to play with Gretzky with team Canada I can't you know this this is just a story Darren Pang a great story that involves Jaegermeister and Darren Pang you can't get enough of it and then another thing too I mentioned Clint Malarchuk is he actually goes into detail about the night the very night that it happened um and just the overall feel from a the team standpoint when it happened and just I almost seem to directly say it, but I also want to feel that, you know, seeing what Clint went through and how he was so open to write his own book and how he read Clint's book, it might've helped him inspire him to be open about his struggles and write his book. So, you know, I'll actually grab it right here. Both these books, um, 
you know, I'm, not, I'm this one's going to be up there right now with it is, uh, you know, Clint Malarchuk, a matter of inches, how I survived in the crease and beyond. And then obviously, I guess I catch 22, uh, the untold story of a Toronto Maple Leafs legend, my battles in hockey and life, both unbelievable books. I can't stress enough. Go get them wherever books are, books are sold. Amazon, Barnes and Noble here in Western New York, uh, online on Google, just get them, especially if you're just a big, you know, history buff when it comes to the game of hockey, just because there's so many good stories in there. I, I don't want to give them all away, but you know, again, like I said, he, he overcomes sobriety. He, he, he finds sobriety twice, overcomes his anxieties and just, you know, just a lot of other things that again, we might like take for granted that people go through even in our, in our own lives and just, you know, it, it, it's inspiring and hopefully People who do read this, including myself, are feel inspired to um, start taking on these struggles head on and start being more open and defeating the stigma that involve, revolves around mental health and just just be more open and communicative, communicative uh, with people, friends, family, or you know mental health professionals because it's a, it's a stigma that we need to defeat and you know to help save lives. Lives are at risk, and I, like I said, I can't stressed enough how courageous it was for Rick. You know, he kind of downplays it in a lot of his interviews. Just, um, you know, it's, you know, he says, this is my life and I'm talking about it. I'm very open. Yeah, but, you know, it, it's it's crazy, crazy courageous. It takes a lot of heart, a lot of bravery to be open with not just a, a select few, but the world, essentially, the hockey world, about what you went through and, you know, how you overcame it. Well, even probably what you still go through today. Um, you know, his wife was a rock in his life. Uh you know, he probably wouldn't have made it through all these struggles without her. And, you know, obviously just, um, he also speaks very um, with the, with the exception of the end of his career in Buffalo with John Buckler, he spoke pretty glowingly about his time at Buffalo. How I love playing here uh, for all those Sabres fans that are watching, you know, watching and listening right now. He does speak very glowingly of Buffalo in here. Um, and obviously the Toronto fans that watch and listen to us too, like he, he's a Maple Leafs legend, pick up this book read it, start to appreciate. And you know what? I think you guys should really start to advocate for advocate for to get his number retired because he deserves it. You know, the fact that the guy who was the only, was the first ever Maple Leaf to score 50 goals. And when he scored it, he did it three times, three seasons in a row. The fact that he, his number isn't retired is, you know, blows my mind, you know? So catch 22, my Battles in Hockey and Life, The Untold Story of a Toronto Maple Leafs Legend by Rick Vive with Scott Morrison. Make sure you pick it up. It's a great, unbelievable read. Again, I can't stress it enough. Pick it up. Pick it up. Jesus Christ. With that being said, though, just a few uh, more notes. Obviously, for those of you who have been following the, this past week's ongoings of the NHL, it looks like it's almost a certainty that we will get a season. Uh, starting on January 13th, anywhere between a 52 and 56 games. I mean, obviously, we uh, for all those who have followed the NHL uh, this past week have already seen the new realignment the league plans on doing. Like I said before, we will get a 52 to 56 game season uh, reported by Pierre Lebrun. Not finalized yet and still subject to change, but the 2020-2021 Ford Division realignment currently looks like this, according to sources. Putting Buffalo in this division, which, again, this is going to be an uphill climb. 
uh, just a, a extremely difficult. Again, a, 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 as it would fall if it's a six-game season, you would probably play these teams around seven to eight times each. I, I can't do the math in my head right now. But the division would be Buffalo, Boston, New Jersey, the New York Islanders, the Rangers, Philly, Pittsburgh, and Washington. Holy shit. What a, a division where you're only going to be playing those teams. And then the other divisions would be Carolina, Columbus, Detroit, Chicago, Florida, Minnesota, Nashville, Tampa Bay, and another division, <laughs> uh, Anaheim, Arizona, Colorado, Dallas, L.A., San Jose, uh, St. Louis, and uh, the Vegas Golden Knights. I mean, shit. I mean, Colorado might win 50 games in that division. Let's be real. Like, they're going to steamroll that division, that, without a doubt. Same thing with Vegas. That, that's going to be, you know, the, the only the only losses, you know, that uh, Colorado might suffer might be against a team like Vegas or a team like uh, the Blues. We'll see. But that division's a joke. And then, obviously, we all know about the all-Canadian teams division, which sucks. It sucks. It sucks. Because that means – we won't have the opportunity to play the Maple Leafs until the playoffs. Yes, I said until the playoffs because I feel optimistic. Why do I feel optimistic? Because I think a shorter, shortened season does benefit Buffalo. And I think people need to realize, I'm not sitting here saying, I'm not going to sit here and guarantee playoffs, but I do feel optimistic about it. The Sabres, they've gotten better. They got better. I mean, I wish there were a little, some more changes done defensively. But they've gotten better from their first, second, and third line. You bring in the obvious Taylor Hall. Taylor Hall playing uh, uh, on the wing, the wing of Jack Eichel, whomever it is on that right side. You know, people seem to think it's going to be Sam Reinhardt. I disagree. I think it should be Jeff Skinner, you know, nine million dollar man. Get him up there. Get as much as you can out of him. You're paying him to be a first line player, so you know what? He should be playing on the first line. Get as much out of Jeff Skinner as you can. And I think you might have the most dangerous line in all of hockey there. If playing on, if if it works with him playing on his off wing, and everything clicks and they they develop some chemistry there, then you have Eric Stahl playing down in your second line center. Um, I could definitely see a you know a line of Stahl, Reinhardt, and Olafson uh, being being the second line, which I personally think again a very 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 dangerous second line. You have a guy with a, a great hockey IQ such as Sam Reinhardt, the ability to play in front of the net. He's a good playmaking. He's a good playmaking winger, and if analytics are correct, he can drive his own line from the wing. You have such a veteran, um, future Hall of Famer in Eric Stahl centering that again, centering that line. Guy still has it. The guy still has the ability to put up forty-five to fifty-five points, in my opinion. Proved it last year. Then you got Victor Olsson, who was one of the best releases in the league. You know, had it not been for injury, he might have taken home Rookie of the Year last year. I, I know, you know. Colorado fans, you know, Cal McCard, you know, ran away. No, I think it had barring injury. I think Victor Olsen had a really legitimate shot at being the rookie of the year last season, you know, hands down. The guy was on fire for most of the season. Just, you just, I cannot wait to see what the future holds for him on this team. You know, you signed him, you signed him to a pretty decent uh, RFA deal in the off season. So, you know, let him, let him just, keep doing what he does on the power play, especially on that first power play unit. I know he might, there might be a little bit of a dip in points, maybe possibly because he won't be playing with Jack. This is again, this is, this is just my predictions. I, this is where I think they should put a listen because I think you should try and get the most dangerous combination out of your two top lines. I think putting Jeff Skinner back with Jack Eichel uh, is what is the best way to go, you know, and then you have your third line, you bring in Cody Eakin. 
you know, to, to center that third line. And I think, you know, analytically, he uh, possession-wise, he's not a good Corsi guy. But with all with everything said, like you look at what we've had in the past, I know people are kind of upset that, you know, Larson is no longer with the team. But you know what? You still have Gergensons. You still have um, – you brought in Tobias Ryder to be kind of a penalty-killing specialist. And then you bring, you bring in a guy like Cody Eakin who can center that third line and, you know, probably, you know – Bring in not probably. I I would expect bring in some more scoring, add some more scoring to this lineup because that's one thing Larson wasn't doing. He wasn't he he wasn't on the team to be a scoring threat. But that's where this team has struggled so much. Was and always has been for a decade now is scoring. So you bring in a guy like Cody Eakin who has shown he can score and produce in the past, and that's what you hope you can get get out of him. And then you, you, the players you surround him. Um, you, you surround him with, you, you hope that could fill that void defensively that Larson obviously is leaving, you know, going, uh, going elsewhere. So I think he went to Arizona. I could be wrong. I, I can't remember where, where the heck uh, uh, Johan Larson went, but with all that being said, you got, you got Lazar still in the lineup. Um, and, and just, uh, you obviously you, you have, um, Kyle Oposo, sorry, escape me for a second. Um, just at, at other lines, you know, some, still some familiar faces that, you know, maybe we're not so excited to see come back, but it is what it is. You got to remember Tage Thompson was signed to a deal too. So he's more likely and more likely than not in the lineup next year. Hopefully everything that he was showing in Rochester before the injury translates to the NHL game finally, because I know he's been kind of a suitcase back and forth between the, the NHL and the minors. And then, you know, you have the big wild card and Dylan Cousins. Dylan Cousins, who, you know, just got selected to Team Canada along with Sabres, uh, you know, first-round pick this past NHL draft, Jack Quinn, both playing under Andre Torini, Bear uh, for Team Canada, one of the best coaches in all of junior hockey. So you hope that – honestly, I hope, you know, again, people want to think that if Jack Quinn can show in the World Junior Tournament that, you know, he can he, he can dominate there, that maybe you should give him a sniff in the NHL. I disagree. We've seen that story before with guys like Nylander and Casey Mill. Again, Casey Middlestead, he's still on the team. Where does he fit in? There's another question I asked you guys. Where does Casey Middlestead fit into this lineup? Because it's tough for me to find a spot for him on this team right now. It really is. First-round first, first round pick or not, it's tough for me to find him a spot. And again, like I said, guys like Alex Nylander, you rushed in, you you rushed into the who's who's developing. You rushed you go back as far as uh, Grigorenko. Remember Grigorenko? You know, we rushed him in, uh, into a situation he wasn't ready for. So with all that being said, I just uh, I hope with Jack Quinn we take our time with it. There's nothing wrong with allowing him to stay in uh, with the Ottawa 67s for one more season to learn under the tutelage of Andre Torini. Coach Torini, again, in my opinion, best coach in all of junior hockey. There's a reason why he's the head coach of Team Canada for that just that reason alone. So, you know, with all that being said, let's hope that um, they don't rush that development. And, and again, I, I think Dylan Cousins is a wild card. I could definitely see Dylan Cousins, you know, contributing to this lineup next season because I think it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to be on this team next season because there's nothing really left for him to prove in junior hockey, in the WHL. So, you know, just get ready to see Dylan cousins make his Sabres debut this season. I can't wait. Um, I loved everything I saw from him last season. He's taken on a leadership role with team Canada. He's uh, currently actually playing on a line uh, in practice with Jack Quinn, 
which is exciting. So, and you know, he takes a lot of pride in being one of the returning guys from the previous gold medal uh, Canadian team from last year and being looked upon to be a leader for that team. So that's exciting in itself. So, you know, with all that being said, guys, you know, obviously uh, on our next episode, episode 41, which we're going to be dropping almost immediately after this episode, you know, two for one special. Sorry, it took us a little while to get uh, all this drops. You know, we've had some te- technical difficulties. But with all that being said, I cannot wait to drop this episode. And again, episode 41 with CBS writer and overall my favorite top three favorite follow on Twitter, uh, Pete Blackburn. Uh, we've already interviewed him too. Guy was an absolute beauty. So with all that being said, guys, I hope you've enjoyed the week. Um, big win by the Bills. Can't wait to see where the Bills go to. You know, uh, you know taking down eleven and one, uh, the eleven and one Steelers last night it was a lot of fun to watch that in. I think it's okay to finally, as Bills fans, as Buffalo's at, at Buffalo Bills fans, to use the S word Super Bowl because I think this team is right there. I think next to Kansas City, we may have the second best team in all of the AFC. Uh, Tennessee still scares me a little bit. You should be scared of Derrick Henry. Uh, guy is an absolute beast. Uh, I'm pace for. I don't think he'll get it, but I'm pace for 2,000 yards uh, on the season. 2,000 rushing yards in the season. Obviously, you know, once they have a playoff uh, a playoff spot clinched, he'll probably get sat and might miss out on the, on that 2000 yard season, but we'll see uh, who knows. Um, it depends on how well uh, Kansas city plays here at the end. And if that for that, that uh, number one seed in the AFC is still up for grabs, we'll see what happens because obviously we all know that this year because of COVID only one team will get a buy uh, I believe from each conference or, you know, however it's played out. So I, I you know, as long as that, um, First overall C in the AFC is still up for grabs. I could see them not sitting Henry, but if they have lock of a playoff spot and that number one seed is out of reach, I don't think we'll see Derrick Henry get to 2,000 yards. But, hey, this is a hockey podcast, not a football podcast. Uh, I'm talking about football to end the show. But, hey, the Bills won. The Bills are 10-3. and three. The Bills could clinch a playoff spot tonight with a win from Cleveland over the Baltimore Ravens, and we are on route to winning the AFC East. And uh, I don't know, like since was it like nine, 1995, something like that, which is insanity. What is that? Uh, like 2005. Holy shit. That's 25 years, 25 years. Right. I think if, if it was from 95, 2005, 2015, 2020. Yeah, that's uh, 25 years. I am terrible at math. So, but with all that being said, guys, we'll catch you for episode 41. This is Dwayne for Cully. Thank you again, Rick, for coming on the show. Make sure you pick up his book, Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life, the untold story of a Toronto Maple Leafs legend. Uh, Unbelievable book. Um, He wrote alongside uh, his good friend and um, comrade Scott Morrison. So with that being said, guys, I'll let you go. Take care. I'll talk to you on episode 41 with Pete Blackburn with a special guest co-host. I won't reveal that right now, but uh, you know, Cully couldn't make it for that one. Couldn't get out of work. So I had a special guest co-host, but the guy is an absolute beauty. He's a wagon and one of the biggest beards in all of uh, North America. So with the jump, he has like a beard the size of Jumbo Joe and Brent Burns. I'll put it that way. It's an absolute beauty. So guys, I'm signing off. Finally, I'll shut the hell up. Love you guys, and we'll talk to you soon.
Hi, I'm Joel McLeod, co-host of the 905er podcast. The 905 is one of the most diverse and densely populated regions of Canada. Four and a half million of us live, work, and play in the area surrounding Toronto. That's more people in the 905 than actually live in Toronto. Each election, the 905 decides who forms our government at both the provincial and federal levels. So why isn't more attention being focused on us here in the 905? We're looking to change that. My co-host, Roland Tanner, and I tell the stories that define what we are calling the most important region in Canada. Each week, we bring to your attention news, culture, and issues that make up what it means to be a 905er. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. Or you can visit us at 905er.ca to subscribe. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.